Golden West Radio Network presents Crisis. How often in these weekly dramas we present a tale built around one of the weaknesses in human nature. There's quite a catalog of them from which to choose, but one particular human frailty seems to crop up again and again, just as it does in life. Tonight we are to meet a gentleman, yes, I use the term advisedly, a gentleman who by education and profession is respected, whose credentials in his field are impeccable. A man who never makes a move or utters a word without first giving it serious and deliberate thought. A planner. A meticulously orderly, dispassionately objective man. A man whose emotions are securely in control. But a man who is thoroughly dedicated to... Revenge. Revenge. It's as simple as that. All of us cherish a secret inner drive. Power, position, wealth, etc., well, I had all those, or all I wanted of them. Since this is confession time, I must admit that nothing I could crave would give me the satisfaction of wreaking revenge on the small-minded, petty thieves who have stolen my property. I have given this a great deal of thought, and I have concluded that only in seeing the guilty parties pay for their perfidy will I ever again know any peace of mind. And so, this is my story, told as fairly and objectively as I can tell it. My name is James Bertelson. I have been robbed of an inspiration, a complex, highly marketable process invented and perfected solely by myself. It was taken from me legally, so my attorney said. I have no recourse, so my attorney said. But I have, and I intend to exercise it. My recourse is my mind, and the vengeance it will produce. Tonight's production of Crisis is titled The Art of Getting Even and stars Richard Arnold. Act one in just a minute. And now, act one of The Art of Getting Even. I came out of Cornell in the top 5% of my class. I went to Yale for my doctorate. I was accepted by Prentice, Morgan, and Carruthers as an associate in chemical engineering. They're the big eastern manufacturers of photographic film. Five years later, they took Virginia and me out to dinner and poured champagne for us and presented me with a contract, which, of course, I signed. You won't regret this move, Bertelson, I promise you. I still can't believe it. You don't know how hard he's worked, Mr. Morgan. Oh, yes, I do. We've been watching you, Bert. That's why we decided to offer you a long-term contract with the firm. You're our kind of man. Our kind of man. Yes. The kind of man who puts in nine solid hours in the company lab every day, eating lunch out of a brown paper sack, just so he can continue some experiment designed to make more and more money for PM&C. The kind of man who lives, breathes, and sleeps chemistry. So much so that he even has a lab in his basement at home. Bert, I'm going to bed. Are you coming along soon? Just a few minutes, Virginia. I can't stop right this second. It's past midnight. What are you doing down there? I'm watching a reaction. I'm sorry to be late again, dear. It's just a project you can't turn off in the middle. And it fascinates me. 
I think I may be on to something. Is this some assignment for the company? Assignment? No. In fact, they don't know anything about it. I mean, if it fails, they'll never need to know. But if it succeeds, if it succeeds... Can you tell me what it is? It's a new kind of emulsion for movie film. You know the ASA numbers? I've heard you talk about them. I think I have a way of coating film stock so that its sensitivity to light is variable over a wide range of speed. In plain English. Well, what I'm trying to come up with is a totally foolproof film that can't be under or, or overexposed. A film that will automatically compensate for scenes that are too light or too dark and that will make amateur movie making just that much easier. That sounds important. I'll tell you how important it could be, Virginia. It could put us on easy street for the rest of our lives. This process is patentable. Really? Yes. And don't you think good old Morgan won't pay handsomely for the rights to produce it? That's wonderful. Yes, if it really works. But I think it will. And it did. I repeated the process again and again to prove I really had something. And there was no question, none at all. I had developed a means to assure that not a single foot of film need ever again be discarded because of the wrong exposure setting. So I packed up all my data and got an appointment with Mr. Morgan. Yes, of course I remember you, uh, Bertleby. Bertelson. Uh, Bertelson, yes. What can I do for you? I think, I think I can do something for you, Mr. Morgan. Something I've been working on at home. Oh? I have perfected a process that will revolutionize home movies. You don't say. I've been trying for months to come up with a simple, practical emulsion that will automatically correct itself for under- or overexposed pictures. And I did it. All the data is here in these notebooks. Hmm, sounds interesting. Uh, how do you get around the graininess problem if our home uh, movie maker is shooting in darkness? It's all in the notes. Fascinating. I can show you a test I've done. It's a little crude. I had to hand coat some raw film stock with my emulsion. But it'll show you what would happen when my film runs through a camera with any iris setting at all, from a pinhole to wide open. Uh, you have some film there? Yes, sir. Well, come on, let's see it. There's a projector next door. <laughs> Well, what do you think? Incredible. Bertelson, you really have stumbled onto something. Oh, but it wasn't an act of stumbling, Mr. Morgan, no. I developed this process over a long period of experimentation. Well, yes, that's what I mean. Then you're interested? Definitely. My boy, if this proves out in our own lab, and we put it into production, I'll see to it that you receive a nice increase. A nice increase. Uh, no, Mr. Morgan, you don't understand. This is my own work. I'm patenting it. I've already called in a patent attorney and filed the papers, so PM and C will have to purchase the rights to the process from me. Bertelson, you're forgetting. We have a contract. Didn't you ever read it? Read it? The contract? Well, yes. Well, didn't I've you read, read the part where it states that any new uh, development or technique you might come up with becomes the property of the company? I don't Remember anything like that? Well, it's right there, standard clause. It's in the contracts of all of our uh, developmental people. I don't believe it. I've been working on this for months and months, on my own time, in my own lab. I said you'd be compensated. We won't let you down, Bertelson. Well, he was right, of course. There was a clause in my contract that said... Any work I did, anything I came up with, would become company property. It even said I agreed to forfeit patent rights to the company. And I signed it. 
I took it to Berman, my lawyer. Tight as a drum, James. He's right. This is standard procedure in a lot of big companies. You don't have a leg to stand on. But that's usury. That's completely unfair. This means I couldn't keep the rights to... to anything I create. For the life of the contract, another eight years. Eight years. Eight years to go. Why did I sign a ten-year contract? What if I defy it? Suppose I just go ahead and market the process anyway. They'd sue the pants off you. But that's unfair. It isn't right, Berman. Who said anything about right? Maybe it isn't right, but it's legal. And you signed it. And that's when it hit me. As I took the elevator down from Berman's office, the idea hit me. I was a prisoner now. I'd been a prisoner for two years, ever since I signed that contract. Only I hadn't realized it until now. I couldn't quit. I couldn't protest. All I could do was keep on going to work week in, week out for 416 more weeks, not counting vacations and sick leave. I had sold my brain to Prentice, Morgan, and Carruthers. And then another stronger thought came over me, the swelling, burning desire for revenge. I didn't know right then how I'd do it, but I knew that if I applied myself to the task, I'd come up with something, and it would be diabolical. Well, now we know what drove James Bertelson to do what he did. Next, we'll learn what that was and how he did it right after this message. James Bertelson, a brilliant chemist, may not be an imposing figure to look at, but his intellect is formidable, and so is his capacity for revenge. It was strange... As soon as I'd identified the compulsion to get even with Morgan, I became calm again. It was as if I had just been given a new challenge. I approached it as I approached every challenge in my work, coolly, carefully, examining every facet, turning it over in my mind. There was no hurry. Darling. What? What are you thinking about tonight? Oh, was I thinking? Of course you were thinking. You were always thinking. Well, so I was. It's a new challenge, dear. Down at work? Mm-hmm. Oh, Bert, I'm so proud of you for not being bitter about the invention. You aren't, are you? No, not anymore. There are too many other things to think about. That's right. And they did give you a nice bonus. They did indeed. And we're making plenty of money as it is. And just think, no worries about security for eight long years. I do think about that, Virginia. I think about it all the time. The keystone of my whole plan, of course, was to do something totally unexpected. Something so out of character that nobody would ever suspect me. I had to keep Virginia in the dark, naturally. So when I decided on the course of action, I had to do my research in secret. Going out again tonight, darling? You never work down in the basement anymore. Well, I will be, dear. I'll be down at the plant if you need me. I won't need you. But thanks for telling me. And Bert? Yes? I won't call you. You see, I trust you. Yes, Virginia trusted me. And so did everyone at the plant. The night supervisor was happy to let me into the rooms I needed to visit, the accounting department, and on other evenings, the mail room. Nobody asked any questions. In fact, I was a minor hero around the company. 
The monthly newsletter identified me as the developer of the new variable speed film process. No fault film, they called it, and sales of it were snowballing. That's why I visited the accounting department. It wasn't hard to see the sales figures and determine in dollars just how badly the company had cheated me. I reckoned I would be out just over a million dollars in royalties the first year alone. That helped me to determine the intensity of the revenge I was planning. The scheme began to grow in complexity, and the more involved it became, the more care I lavished on all the details of it. Part of it was unpleasant. I had to cultivate the relationship with Morgan into a flowering friendship. As sales of no-fault film continued to climb, this became easier to do. I became Morgan's fair-haired boy. I can't believe you've never played a game of golf, Jimmy. Well, I've just been too busy. Well, that's got to stop. Man's no good if he keeps his nose to the grindstone all the time. <laughs> I hear you've even been coming back and working late at night. Oh, sometimes. Well, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're working on another project like the no-fault film. <laughs> well, it's... Uh... Too, too early to say. Oh, uh, well, yes, of course. Okay, now here's the fifth T, and uh, if you don't mind a little advice, I think you're forgetting to keep your head down and the left arm stiff. Now you go ahead and drive off the T, and don't worry about the rest of us. Remember, we all have to start learning sometime. Right, Jimmy? I hated every minute on the golf course with Morgan and his two cronies but it gave me valuable information I had to have. I learned that Morgan received a monthly delivery of mail that came unopened direct to his desk. Business correspondents stopped at his private secretary, but certain envelopes came through to Morgan personally. I wondered what they were, letters from a secret lover, perhaps. The thought of blackmail flitted through my mind, but I rejected it as being too crude and open. Besides, I wanted more than money from Morgan. It was simple to find out when those personal letters came, and I arranged to be in his outer office one day when they arrived from the mailroom. Miss Vance, his private secretary, had gone to powder her nose, and I took the opportunity to study the mail. Is there something I can help you with, Mr. Bertelson? Oh, uh, Miss Vance, <laughs> how lovely you look. Pink certainly is your color. Thank you. Did you want to see Mr. Morgan? Uh, why, um, uh, yes, uh, if he's not tied up. Oh, I think you can go in. He's between appointments. Uh, fine. Uh, oh, shall I take him his mail? Oh, all right. Here, just this letter. Just this one? That's right. I handle all the rest. That told me all I needed to know. The letter was from the brokerage house, and inside it was a check, peeking through the little window in the envelope. So far, so good. The plot was tying together like a beanbag. It was time to start spending some nights at home in the basement. Bert, coming to bed? In just a few minutes, Virginia. Working on a new experiment? Yes. As a matter of fact, I am. Well, good luck. I'm going to bed. Sweet dreams, dear. Now, my plans were at their most critical stage. I prepared very carefully, and at four in the morning, I was done. That night, I slept like a baby, a deep, dreamless sleep. The next morning I awoke and suppressed the excitement within me. Virginia suspected nothing. The timing was perfect. Now, in 24 hours, I'd know. It was hard to stay in the lab that day, but it was part of my plan to be plainly preoccupied with chemistry. The next day was even harder. But at 11 o'clock in the morning, I heard the siren and I knew it had worked. 
I slipped out of the lab and joined the curious crowd that stood by the elevators. They were all speaking in hushed tones, telling how the rescue unit had rushed in and gone right up to the executive floor, the floor Morgan inhabited. Several minutes later, down came the elevator from the 11th floor. A body lay on the stretcher. The face was deathly pale. The medics hustled out to the street, but I was able to catch a glimpse of that bluish-white face. It wasn't Morgan. It was Miss Vance. Something had gone wrong, but how could it? I was so careful. Well, perhaps it was a coincidence. Maybe Miss Vance had suffered from some natural ailment, whatever the cause. In an hour, we learned the news. She was dead. She was dead. And I had to wait another month and try again for Morgan. The next one simply couldn't fail. It was a day like the day a month earlier. Only this time, I allowed myself to be closer to the target. I was just leaving the elevator on the 11th floor when a young woman I didn't know, someone from the secretarial pool, came staggering toward me. Her face was white. Her lips were blue and she was gasping for breath. It was quite horrible. What's wrong with you? Can't breathe. Call a doctor, please. She fell right at my feet. And two seconds later, I saw Morgan, as healthy as you please, storming out of his office to see what was wrong. He ran over to her, tried to revive her. But I knew she'd be dead in under an hour, just like Miss Vance. This is terrible. I know. Just like Miss Vance. Don't remind me. I'd just given her some mail to take downstairs, and... I say, that's what I had Miss Vance doing when she... Bertelson, why are you looking at me that way? Do you know what you've done, Morgan? What are you talking you, about? You... Nothing. Nothing, sir. Well, you know by now, of course, that the trick was in the personal mail Morgan and only Morgan was to handle. First Miss Vance had done it for him, then this second person. My plan, so carefully conceived, was a total failure. I was so shaken up, it, I took the rest of the afternoon off and went home. I had Virginia make me a strong cup of tea. I should have known something was up when she handed me the cup with a mysterious little grin. Here you are, dear. Thanks. Notice anything? No. What? Your cup. It's your favorite cup. I thought it was broken. It was, but I found some glue and I fixed it. That's fine. I hope you don't mind my using it. Using what? Your glue. I hunted all over the house, and then I found some in this little bottle in your basement lab. But let me see the bottle. Here. It's marked glue. Yes, that's right. It is marked glue. Virginia, please call the doctor. What? Why, are you sick? I am going to be very sick. Call the doctor and tell him to bring anything he can to help a man who has ingested some equine encephalitis bacillus. What are you talking about? The glue. The glue had a heavy dose of bacillus. It acts on the windpipe. Makes it swell closed. You suffocate. All your mucous membranes get inflamed. Can't breathe. What on earth were you doing with anything like that? I thought Morgan would lick the return envelopes himself. But he had his secretary do it. Just 
like him. I might have known. Oh, my Lord. Bert, Bert, what do I tell the doctor? What is that stuff called? Bert, Bert, your lips are blue. No, James Bertelson did not die of his inadvertently self-inflicted poisons because his terrified wife was able to summon the correct medical help in time. But Bertelson did pay the price for his revenge. And perhaps as he sits in his cell, it gives him enough time to reflect that revenge doesn't really belong to man. According to the Bible, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. James Bertelson made the mistake of taking over a function that wasn't his to deal with, and accordingly he got dealt with. I'll be back with the names of tonight's players and a glimpse of next week's crisis. The Art of Getting Even starred Richard Arnold as James Bertelson with Kay Balser, Steve Hilliard, Susie Seeds, and Rich Germain. Sound was created by Jeff Thompson. Our engineer was Carney Barton. Crisis is produced at Audio Recording Incorporated in Seattle. This is Jim French, your writer-director, inviting you to be with us again next Thursday at the same time for Crisis. Crisis. <laughs>